Well, thank you very much, Jonathan, and thank you so much for your, uh, your welcome to me and my wife this morning. It is good to be here. I feel a bit of a, uh, an obligation, actually, to tell you a story because Jonathan has introduced me as the uh, State Director of uh, Global Interaction for Victoria. Now, that sounds pretty high and mighty, doesn't it? But can I just tell you a story just to let you know that I'm a pretty average bloke? I remember um, some years ago, I was in a place called Womina and I was asked by a group of pastors to take part in a service of baptism. And it was a big service. We were baptising 150 young people. It was an amazing service and it was down by a river. And the river was probably about as wide as this church and it was about this deep, full of um, muddy water and flowing along and, and on the bottom big round river rocks. And the pastors had said, Mark, why don't you come in partway through the baptism and you baptise ten young people? So the ten boys, they were boys that I was baptising, went out into the middle of the river and they stood there in a row and you'd work your way down the line to baptise them. Well, it came my turn. There were literally probably over a thousand um, people lining the riverbanks of, of this baptismal service. So I'm thinking I've got to do this properly, you know. So anyway, I... I, I the guys go in and it's my turn. I walk into the river and the river's moving along a bit and I, I get out to the first guy and I put my hand on his head and I say, I baptise you in the name of, and that's as far as I got because the river rocks under my feet moved and I baptised myself <laughs> and I just went under the water. The trouble is I got swept down the river and by the time I came up, I was at the last guy. <laughs> so he's there looking stunned, you know, so I work backwards up the line. <laughs> Just to let you know that I'm a pretty usual, ordinary guy. I do some funny things and uh, this title, State Director, is um, yeah, a, bit of a, a bit of a funny thing. But I do say thank you for the uh, opportunity to be able to talk to you this morning, to tell you some stories, to be able to let you know that what you're involved in as a church is one of the most exciting and strategic things that is happening in the world today in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the war, the terrorism, the bombing, all the broken and, and busted relationships, you guys are involved in something that maybe is not headline news in our newspapers. But I think in the light of eternity, this is something really significant. And you guys need to be really proud of yourselves and really committed to this stuff. I want to talk to you this morning about a few different things, but I'm a little bit nervous, so I want us to pray for each other, if we could do that. I'm going to pray for you by saying the Lord be with you, and if you could then pray for me by responding with and also with you. Can we do that? The Lord be with you. Val and I love walking. We've, uh, we've walked most of our lives. We've walked in different places around the world, and we've walked in a place called Flemington. Flemington is where we've been living, right in the west of Melbourne for a few, uh, for a few years. And uh, it's an amazing place to walk around. One of the main roads in Flemington is a road called Racecourse Road. If you walk up Racecourse Road, you can eat at just about any type of restaurant you like. You can eat Ethiopian, you can eat Eritrean, you can eat Somalian, you can eat Indonesian, you can eat Malaysian, you can eat all sorts of Greek and Italian. You can even eat Irish. There's an Irish pub there. They call it the quiet man. Don't ask me why they call it the quiet man. But you can eat all sorts of different food up and down Racecourse Road. And amazingly, 
multicultural experience. If you walk down through uh, Flemington down to the high rise flats down the end of Racecourse Road, where all sorts of people live, if you do that in the morning, you'll see out on the park all the Asian people doing their Tai Chi. If you walk down in the evening, you'll see the Africans, maybe the Somalians in the Eritreans, playing soccer together. Walking at any time, you can bump into all sorts of different people. But do you know what? There's one rule when you walk in Flemington. Do you know what it is? No eye contact. You don't look people in the eye. Now, I love to meet people. I love to look them in the eye. So it's really strange for me when I'm walking towards somebody, watching them come, and within 10 metres you'll see the eyes drop to the ground. No eye contact. Let me tell you two stories about walking in Flemington. About uh, a few months ago now, I was walking out late at night. It was just before I was going to bed. I thought I'd go for a quick walk, get myself ready for sleep. And so it was about half past 10 at night and I was walking down some of the back streets in Flemington. And towards me, I saw a group of white Anglo young blokes, about half a dozen of them. And they were walking towards me and they were doing what young blokes do. You know, they were drinking a bit and, and talking to each other and, you know, joking, laughing and... When they got to within about 15 metres of me, around the corner behind me came a yellow taxi. Now, I don't know about Wodonga, but taxis in Flemington are usually driven by either people from Africa, so they're black, or people from the Middle East, so they wear turbans. This man wore a turban, and he was driving along the street looking for a house number, quite slowly. As soon as he got to the level where these guys were in earshot of me and I was walking and he's in between us, the young guys lit up. What are you doing wearing a tea towel for a hat, you moron? Why don't you go home where you belong? They yelled. About two weeks later, another story. I was walking along Racecourse Road. This time it was in the middle of the day. And on the corner of Racecourse Road and the, and the Newmarket train station is a big Safeway store. Big brick walls. I came round the corner onto Racecourse Road and ran slap bang into another group of young blokes. This time they were black Africans. And they were about the same age, about 18 to 20. There was about half a dozen of them. As I walked around the corner, I ran bang into the chest of one of them and nearly knocked him over. So I grabbed his shoulder, his shoulders, so he wouldn't be knocked over. And straight away he said, get your filthy hands off me, white man. Don't you touch me like that. These are stories of Flemington. Such an incredibly multicultural area. And yet, no eye contact. And you stop on your side of the line, I'll stop on mine. You know, maybe, maybe we've become a nation that's just in microcosm there at, 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 at Flemington. Maybe we're a nation that instead of meeting this multiculturalism and saying and embracing it, we build our fences. We've become a nation of fence builders. Did you know that? I've done some flying, as I guess all of you have. But if you fly over Melbourne, you'll see something peculiar. Something peculiar if you compare it to, say, big cities in, the, uh, in, in Indonesia, Asia, Malaysia, places like that. You know what it is when you fly over Melbourne at a fair height? You know what you see? You see matchboxes. All these little matchboxes. You know what they are? They're our suburban fences. We've become a nation of fences. We say, we build our fence, we, this is our bit of grass, this is our pool, this is our house, this is our garden, you stop on your side of the fence, I'll stop on mine. 
This is my responsibility, that's yours. And this type of fence building stuff not only is demonstrated in our physical fences, it's also in our lives. We've become a nation who build fences, especially in regard to people of other cultures. You mind your business, I'll mind mine. And this sums up Australia. This is who we are as a nation. And I've often wondered why this is the case. Why do we do this stuff? I kind of think, having a, having a think about it for a while, it's the stories that we listen to. Now, you might think that's a bit strange. Let me read you a quote by a man called Daniel Taylor. Stories go somewhere to roost. Somewhere deep within our spirits. They settle there beyond consciousness to grow, blend with other stories and experiences and work their influence from below. Now, let me, uh, let me maybe explain this a little bit to you from my perspective. We all have stories that work their influence from below. I have a lot. Let me tell you about one. My dad, when he was about five years old, four or five years old, lost his mum. They were living on a farm up in uh, Mallee area of Victoria. He was, uh, grew up at Quambatook on wheat and sheep. Pretty rough in those days. My dad's uh, heading on towards 80, so it was a fair while ago. He was the youngest boy in the family. Lost his mum. So when my dad fell over, cut his knee, bruised his elbow, got in a bit of tiff or something, tears started to flow, who would he run to? Well, he'd go to his dad. You know what his dad would say? Life's tough, son. Don't be a sook. Grow up. Boys don't cry. So my dad grew with this story, working its influence from below. I'm the eldest of six boys. My dad passed on that story to his six boys. Life's tough. Don't be a sook. That story worked its influence from below. Now, I have to tell you, I'm one of the most emotional guys you'll ever meet. I cry over desperate housewives, for goodness sake. <laughs> but it's taken me years. I'm now 52 years old and it's taken me years to recognise that as a male, it's okay to cry because Dad's story worked its influence from below. What stories work their influence from below in your life? What stories are you listening to? You know, there are a lot of stories floating around in our nation of Australia. Stories that work their influence from below. Just recently you would know there's been stories in our newspapers about sexual abuse in Indigenous communities. You know, those stories work their influence from below. There's also been stories over the past few years about Muslim women and their clothing, how they might conceal bombs. These stories work their influence from below. The stories in our newspapers, I don't know about Wodonga, but especially in Melbourne, about the most livable suburb in Melbourne. They work their influence from below, especially if you don't live in those suburbs. You know, there was some stories just a little while ago concerning Indonesia. I've spent some time in Indonesia and I want to use Indonesia this morning as a, uh, as, as, as a focus so that we can think about what we're doing this morning, about adopting the Yao. 
I wanted to tell some stories about Africa, but it's not been my experience. So I want to use my Indonesian experience to draw our attention to what you're doing here this morning. There were some stories about Indonesia floating around in our newspapers. You've all heard of the Bali Nine. I dare, I dare say there's not one of you here this morning who hasn't heard of the Bali Nine. That story has worked its influence from below. About a year ago, there was a story in our newspapers that grabbed the whole of Australia's attention. You know what it was? A lady called Chappelle Corby. Everybody knows Chappelle Corby. Her face was splashed on all the newspapers. Her story was right through the documentaries, the news, the newspapers, the talkback radio shows. You know, this story grabbed hold of Australia like few other stories. I found a letter to a newspaper. You know how you write into the editor of a newspaper at this time? Let me read you the effect that this story had on our nation, or at least some of our nation. The letter reads, We gave to Indonesia... When the call went out, we all dug deep to give what we could to Indonesia in its time of crisis. This was, of course, the tsunami. Our government has also given generously of our tax dollars to them. Now we have two ways or two examples of how they view us. Blow up people and you go free. Get caught in what appears to be a bungle by some incompetent internal smuggler and you get 20 years. I want my money back. Everyone should boycott Indonesia as a tourist destination. Let's show them that we don't agree with the way they are conducting themselves. Stories go somewhere to roost. Somewhere deep within our spirits and they work their influence from below. Last year, one month after the tsunami that rocked Asia, I travelled to, uh, to Banda Aceh. I can't tell you what I saw when I got there. You've all seen the documentaries. You've all seen the pictures. But I can't tell you what it was like. I spent four months there with World Vision, working on some reconstruction. When I arrived, the stench was horrendous. There were still literally thousands of bodies caught under wire, underneath rubble, stuck in the gutters, collected up against bridges, even in the top of trees. They were all blue and unrecognisable. As I said, I couldn't believe the devastation. I spent most of the first week just crying. I want to tell you some stories. I felt that when I came home after four months, God said to me, there are some stories that are working their influence from below in the lives of Australian people. I want you to tell some other stories. So I met some people. Having lived and worked in Indonesia for quite a few years, I understand the uh, language and, and speak it and so was able to sit with people. This man is a man from Lapung. Lapung's a fishing village. It's by the sea and uh, 
it was an amazing village full of all sorts of houses and people and yet when I arrived there were just hundreds of tents. This man, man from Lapung, was living in a tent about this high. Actually it was just a flap of canvas over a bit of a board, dirt floor, no kitchen, no water, no toilets, sitting there. I sat down beside him and I said, uh, my friend, can you tell me what happened? And this is what he said. He said, Mark, I was, I was sitting in my house and uh, it was about eight o'clock in the morning and I was sitting down on a plastic mat with my three children and my wife was over there with our, our little kerosene stove and she was cooking us some fried rice for breakfast. All of a sudden, my house turned upside down. Everything went black. I didn't realise I was underwater. I was being thrown around and cut by tin and slammed up against timber and, and churned around. I couldn't breathe. When I tried to suck in some air, I realised it was water. And as I broke the surface, I had been swept 25 kilometres down the coast to where I lived. And you know what he then said to me? He said, Mark, I wonder if you can help me. You see, I haven't been able to find my three kids or my wife since that morning. I don't think I met anybody in Arche who actually said my family died. You see, the bodies were unrecognisable or else they'd been swept away. And here was this man saying, can you help me? I haven't seen my three kids and my wife. I met another man called Deddy. Deddy was a, a young bloke around about 30 years old. And uh, he took me on my second day that I was there in a four-wheel drive vehicle on a tour around some of the, some of the, uh, some of the township of Bunda Arche and then down the coast. And we got to this, this section here. And uh, he pulled up the car and he, and he, he out, wound down the window and he pointed him, Mark, Mark, that's where I used to live. And, and, and he could say no more. He just started to sob because it gradually came out that in that little community there, he had lost every single member of his immediate family and every single member of his extended family. For an Indonesian, this is, this is just unthinkable because I do not operate outside of my community. I am nobody outside of my community. My response was just to, just to sob with him. I spent that first day driving around with Deddy, just, just devastated at what had happened to people's lives. A village called Layun. Well, no longer a village, as you can see. Layun Manangis means Layun is crying. Archie comes from Layun. Archie's an architect. I worked with Archie for about four months. I'm still in contact with him. Um, he's a good friend of mine. He's only a young bloke, probably about 28 years old. Let me tell you um, a little bit of Archie's story. Archie is the oldest boy in his family. When he was very young, in primary school, his dad left to go and find another life somewhere. And... Uh, in Indonesian culture, Archie has to take responsibility for the family because he's the oldest male. So he put himself through primary school by working. And he worked his fingers to the bone to put himself through primary school. Then he went into high school and he worked to put himself through high school while he put his younger siblings through primary school. And then he worked to put himself through university while he put his younger siblings through high school. On the day of the tsunami, 
He tells me he doesn't know what happened to his siblings. But he was able to grab his mum. And he grabbed his mum around the waist and as he was swept along by this enormous power of gigantic wave that came through, he, he was able to grab a tree, a palm tree, put his arm around the palm tree and had his mum. Mum's an elderly, frail woman. The trouble was that then the second wave came. And Archie couldn't hang on to his mum and the palm tree. And he, I can still feel it, sitting there in the office with him, telling me, Mark, my mum said to me, Archie, you're going to have to let me go. How do I live with that, he says. How do I live with that? I just got an email from him about a month ago. He says, I'm still, I'm still black about this whole thing. These are people. They're people who would be sitting in the pews here in Wodonga if they were here. They're, they're just like you. These are not some them. These are not some, you know, other that we can just shove away and say, I want my money back. These are people. You know, there's one thing about Bandache that is rather staggering. When I got there, this is a typical scene. Um, the whole village gone, one building left standing. You know what it is? It's a mosque. Bandarche is a, a place where in Indonesia it's the most devout, as some people would call it, the most fanatical Muslim place in Indonesia. When we lived and worked in Indonesia, uh, Val and I would often think, oh, we'd never want to go there. That would be so dangerous for Christian people. That's the type of place Bandarche is. So you get there and this wave has knocked everything flat except the mosque. Now I, as, a, as having a building background, can give you good architectural reasons why that mosque is still standing. Number one, it's got an open wall uh, building plan so the water would just go on through. Number two, <coughs> excuse me, number two, they put more cement into their concrete mix especially for religious buildings. And so the, the mosque is standing. But you try and tell that to a devout Muslim. What would you think if the whole of Wodonga was knocked flat except for all the churches? What would you be thinking? You know, the number one question I got asked, and they knew that I was a man of faith, they knew that I was a man who followed the Lord Jesus, who was a Christian, the number one question I got asked was, Mark, why did God do this and you can understand why that question comes. What was I supposed to respond to this? What was I supposed to say to this question? It was mainly tears, let me tell you. But can I also say that my response was not shaped by some letter that said, I want my money back. My response was shaped by another letter. A letter written by a man long time ago to a church called the Church of Corinth. Let me read you one of the verses out of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, you might hear that word reconciliation and have some funny feelings about it. Most Australians do. Well, I think we need to reclaim it as Christian people. 
This is a brilliant word. Let me try and explain what I think about reconciliation so we get a hang of a, a hand on what, what, what was happening here in this question from these, uh, these Muslim people. Being an emotional guy, um, I've learnt later on in life that I like a lot of what I used to think was unmanly things. I've fallen in love with art. Don't tell anybody. I've fallen in love with art. And one of my favourite painters is a man called Henri Matisse. Henri Matisse has done this gigantic painting, probably about as big as the screen there, called The Dance. And it's this amazing painting of a group of women, small group of women, linked hands in a circle, dancing for joy on this green hilltop. And it is a staggering piece of art. There is a theologian called Paul Fittis. Paul Fittis has written a book on God. He's a theologian and he's written a book on the Trinity. And it's, and it's just a great book called Participating in God. And he has used Henri Matisse's piece of art for the cover of his book. Why? Because he believes that this picture is an amazing picture of our God. This dancing trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dancing from one end of the universe to the other in complete and utter joy and linked together, inseparably linked together and dancing for joy across the universe. Now, hang with me because this is really important. There's another theologian called Miroslav Volf. And he has written a book called Exclusion and Embrace. Let me read you one of the quotes as you think about that picture. When God sets out to embrace the enemy, says Wolf, the result is the cross. On the cross, listen to this, on the cross, the dancing circle of self-giving and mutually indwelling divine persons opens up for the enemy. In the agony of the passion... The movement stopped for a brief moment and a fissure appears so that sinful humanity can join in. I don't know if, I don't know if you get the, the sense of that, but this makes me shiver. This dancing God linked, dancing from one end of the universe to the other, needing nothing else but the dance, needing nothing else to be fulfilled, not having to bother with anything because in God's self, complete. And yet in the moment of the cross, the gap appears, the hands break open <laughs> and I'm invited in. People, this is staggering. And can I say, this is not a God who sends tsunamis. This is a God who sends himself. And do you know what this God who sends himself says? In the person of Jesus says, As the Father sent me, so I send you. Welcoming for the enemy. An invitation to join the dance. What a God. This is our God. And this is the answer. This is the answer that I wanted to be able to say. Why did God send this? I don't believe God did. God sent himself. 
And that's the story that I want to work, uh, that I want to let work its influence from below in myself. You know, I think probably what you people are doing here this morning is telling yourselves a, a good story. You're not just Wodonga Baptist. You don't survive just by being isolated here in Wodonga. You're connected. And you are saying we are connected to the hour. Because God, in his mercy, has broken the hands and welcomed the hour in. And he says, and I give you that same ministry. And people, that's what you're doing here this morning. You know, when I came home from uh, Bandarche, I was feeling quite, uh, quite restless, as you can imagine. I'm a pastor of a Baptist church and uh, I was just feeling very restless. And it was at that stage that Global Interaction came to me and said, would I consider doing this, this job? And I did say yes. I said yes because Global Interaction are doing this type of stuff. They are involved in the Ministry of Reconciliation. And you, as part of Global Interaction, are involved in building bridges, not building fences. And I say good on you. This is a story that you need to let go deep into your lives and work its influence from below. A little while ago, while the Commonwealth Games were on, Val and I were... Um, walking in Melbourne and we walked down through one of the gardens and they had, uh, because of the games, they had an enormous uh, big show on, multicultural show and they had one big auditorium where um, people from all over the Commonwealth, all of Africa and all over the world were singing and doing their own music and dancing. And so Val and I sat down and it was great. We were just enjoying the music. And then at one stage there was an Australian singer came up and uh, I don't know if any of you know him but his name's Shane Howard. He was the lead singer out of a rock group called Goanna many, many years back. And I really like some of his older music, so I'm sitting there and I'm singing along to his old songs and we're just having a ball. And then he sang a, a song that I hadn't heard before and I haven't been able to find it anywhere. I don't know the title of it, but one little sentence out of the chorus stood out to me. Here's what it is. Don't surrender to the politics of fear. You know, I think this is so applicable to us as Australian people. We are being sold a politics of fear. Now, you might, uh, you might disagree with me, and I think that's, that's fine. Because in some respects, a politics of fear makes sense. We've got to look after ourselves. But people, can I say to you, God has never called us to make sense. We have never, ever been called to fear. We've been called to love. And you know what the Bible says? That perfect love casts out fear. And God reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. You know, this is probably the most difficult and challenging thing that we can ever be involved in, what you guys are doing here this morning, if we do it right and do it properly. But can I say it's the most significant thing that's probably happening around the world today, that we connect and we do it in the name of God and we invite people in to the circle. Would you pray with me?
Blessed are those who refuse to take vengeance. Blessed are those who cause no harm. Blessed are those who break the cycles of slaughter. Blessed are those who bless and do not curse. Blessed are those who seek to reconcile, who themselves form a bridge for strange meetings. Reconciling God, you call us to follow your lead. Our prayer this morning is that you would sweep us up into your grand story. And we pray this in the name of our beautiful Lord and Saviour, Jesus. Amen.